the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you for joining us on Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's discussion, just want to mention we do have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing us a buck. Taylor and I are very happy to bring you our first discussion of uh, Nietzsche outright, and we're going to be looking at Twilight of the Idols, which is uh, sort of a feast of aphorisms. How many times have you gone through this text, would you say? I love this text. Besides maybe some, and I mentioned this, I think, last time, besides maybe a few passages here and there that don't feel to resonate as much because they rely on kind of niche, niche <laughs> I like saying <laughs> the word niche, niche. But yeah, I mean, you know, the stuff about George Sand and Renan, some of that stuff feels very hot topic for, for the day. Mm-hmm. And maybe just just doesn't ring as well, but at the same time, it goes with the style of sounding out these great names and resonating with them. So, I mean, like that's that's one of the main difficulties is keeping up with all the names. I mean, obviously Schopenhauer is a central one. We see right. he doesn't just stick to trends and fashions. I mean, a lot of what he says still resonates with us today that's the stuff that i try to like focus on and um you know even the title of his book is kind of a pun a play on um one of wagner's works i don't know if twilight of the gods is i believe wagner's work it's like goder dimmerung and this is gods and dimmerung so there's like kind of in the word idol think in German, it's already kind of got a reference to, to gods. Anyway, yeah, I mean, like Nietzsche says in his preface, he's, that's kind of the, uh, the method he's going to undertake is, you know, take a hammer, philosophizing with a hammer, right, to, and, and sort of tapping out and seeing which, which of these idols are, are hollow, you know, which, you know, and so it's, it is interesting to think about I mean, Nietzsche's stuff about music, stuff about art, his stuff about literally about, you know, that which resonates, that which rings true, if you will. There is a sort of proto-Heideggerian meditation on what it means to to be in tune and, and attuned, if that makes sense. You thought this would be a good or have some relevance with Baudrillard as well? I was thinking about how... I mean, there is that one particular section, which I'm sure we'll look at how the, the true world yeah. fi- ultimately became a fable or finally became a fable. And I think that that's kind of the when he says, 
you know, insipid Zarathustra, that's, that is kind of the, the insipid simulacra or something, right? That's kind of this, which we'll get back to. I also thought how, I mean, with Bodra, what I'm hoping to see, and I'm hoping Nietzsche like helps me see is this, that this notion about symbolic exchange and this focus on simulation that, and that maybe what I struggle with Baudrillard is that he is gearing us towards kind of a critique of values. Even if he hasn't gotten there yet, he's building up to it. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't know. That's just kind of an intuition. That's just kind of a hunch. I felt like there was a lot of psychoanalysis that was popping up. I'm kind of like the meme of, what is it, DiCaprio, the DiCaprio pointing meme? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, the, oh, there's Lacan or whatever. But I, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is like my reaction, I think, whenever there's anything psychoanalytic that pops up is to be like, oh, man, oh, man, we're getting into Lacan territory here. Or something. Oh, um, yes. I saw Lacan in the, um, I'm not sure what the pulp, the Hackett translation has. It. It's Raids, Raids of an Untimely Man. Is it something like that? How much Nietzsche does Lacan embrace or does he bring him up and is he ever in dialogue with Nietzsche much? Of course, that's hard to do outside of the Acree. Because I, I think of the Acree he shows up, yeah. He shows up a bit, but very scant references. No extended engagement that I could see. This kind of gets back to what we talked about with Will and, and Jack, just the fact that Lacan is attending the famous Kojev lectures on Hegel in the 20s. And that was kind of Hegel and Heidegger were the rage. And we see, I mean, obviously later Lacan gets more into Heidegger, but you see yeah. how much Hegel means to Lacan and how, in a certain sense, Hegel helps Lacan return to Freud. You know what I mean? Like it, with a difference, right? With whether it be the difference of the signifier or whatever, you know, that's again up for debate and it changes. His very first aphorism in the Maxims part is about. Idleness is the parent of all psychology, is psychology than a vice, right? Which is, I don't know if you saw in the, in the Hackett introductory notes, but the, the original title of the book was supposed to be, God, what is it called? Or the original subtitle or title was supposed to be something like, basically supposed to have a title about psychology and it changed to Twilight of the Idols of course, the subtitle is How to Philosophize with a Hammer. He had originally intended the book to be titled Idol, Idol, like I-D-L-E, not I-D-O-L, mm-hmm. Idol Leisure of a Psychologist, <laughs> which, I, which I think is interesting. <laughs> I, I'm sure you could translate the German in various ways, but yeah, the book was supposed to be have the title related to psychology, right? And Freud kind of famously said, and he, he's probably being slightly tongue-in-cheek, but slightly real, right? It's kind of like Lacan. You can't say the whole truth. You're saying, yeah, you can only say half as uh, at most. But, you know, when when Freud kind of says, like, I avoided reading Nietzsche, you know, so so as not to spoil my discoveries or basically so that I didn't find out that someone else had already had already investigated the grounds I was doing. And there is some truth to that. But at, at the same time, obviously, Freud is seeking out a certain method that he can employ. Whereas, as we know, Nietzsche saying that he distrusts, he distrusts systematizers. So he would never necessarily formulate how one should philosophize with a hammer and like give us a system. 
or, you know, like an axiomatic basis for it. He just provides a, an example of how to do it. And, you know, to be Nietzsche's best disciples, we have to betray him or lose him, blah, blah, blah. Right. I mean, he's, he's always he's always got that heretical streak, right, where there's no true Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Right. There's no true. Here's what Nietzsche actually said, that kind of shit, you know, that that kind of quibbling and hermeneutics can only do so much. Right. But yeah, that first aphorism, right, that if psychology arises out of idleness, is it then a vice? (laughs) And later throughout the book, he'll kind of say what's good psychology, quote unquote, relatively speaking, and what's there's a good psychology, but then there's also a kind of not decadent, but it's kind of a, a, a psychology of people watching, right, rather than looking psychologizing, I guess, to like hold ourselves to higher standards so that we can overcome ourselves in better ways versus, uh, as I said, kind of this idle people watching that, that really would take itself as, as an end and be just about curiosity for curiosity's sake. I think he would say that's where, you know, the idleness of psychology really becomes a vice in his sense where it becomes, it doesn't lead to any self overcoming or any revaluation. It just becomes like, Oh, aren't humans neat. And sometimes we need that diversion, but for him, I think psychology is serious business. You know, I mean, I think he above all means it to become sharper tools, sharpen our own tools towards ourselves, right? To to not rest on a certain foundation that we just kind of take as given and therefore we become sedentary and we lose the sort of the flow, the vibrancy of life that is animated and continually moving, right? He has that Heraclitian inspiration where it's continual flux for him and we have to respect that yeah he does mention heraclitus directly i think at least once that i yeah he does and he actually says heraclitus was wrong on one point that's around the same section i was talking about with uh i think well actually that might be in the four great errors section anyway what what did you see in the work. What, what, what do you do? You did you have something off the top of your head or in your notes that made you think, ah, this reminds me of something we have discussed. Lacan sort of popping out a little bit was uh, aside from the sort of the true world, the you know that whole thing that goes back to Baudrillard and simulation and simulacra. That was kind of the biggest uh, point of interest <coughs> for me. So I decided to go back and look through the decree and I see how many um, citations I could find for, and if there was any, would be any overlap there. And I did find really, there were two passages in the Ikri out of the, there's one, two, three, out of five, five notes, five noted sections in the Ikri. And Freud himself does like quote and bring up Nietzsche, especially in his earlier works. I think he doesn't, he quote Nietzsche in the rat man and, um, or maybe it's the wolf man starting to confuse those two i mean like every now and then every now and then freud will acknowledge that he's at least aware of some nietzsche 
So um, go ahead, though. The formidable power that Freud invokes, awaking us from the sleep in which we weaken at great necessity, is no other than that which is exercised in the Logos, which he was the first to clarify with the glancing light of his discovery. It is repetition itself whose face he, as much as Kierkegaard, renews for us in the division of the subject, the fate of scientific man. Let another confusion be dispelled. It bears no relation to Nietzsche's eternal return. Repetition is unique in being necessary, and should I be unable to tame the repetition for which I assume responsibility, my index would command it to continue. I think Deleuze would disagree with him about... I mean, I think I think that he would actually say Freud's notion of repetition doesn't go as far as Nietzsche's. So if we want to take what Lacan says seriously, that it has no relation to Nietzsche's eternal return, Deleuze would say, yeah, I mean, that's because it it's it's too circumscribed in a notion of psychical reality and it doesn't take on that kind of cosmological vector. Even if Freud is on the verge of that with his kind of metaphysical speculations and uh, beyond the pleasure principle and, and stuff like that. I mean, I think Deleuze would see more connection between them. But again, I, Lacan is showing, like we said, that Nietzsche wasn't central to these investigations. I think that anti-Oedipus is, is really a definitive statement that not just Marx, but especially Freud needs to be brought in fruitful dialogue with Nietzsche. Uh, here, I think Lacan's kind of name dropping. I can't really fault him because it's not like I've never done that. We all do it. But I think right. here he mentions Kierkegaard because Kierkegaard has a fucking book on repetition. He, you know, Nietzsche's one of his most famous things, Eternal Return. That's Lacan doing the name yeah, drop yeah. shit. Right. That, gotcha. But but it's very fascinating. I mean, the, the reason why I kind of picked up on this a little bit was just because of um, sort of the way that Nietzsche is talking about, he's talking about instinct and he's talking about drives a little bit. Yes. Or will as well. And I think yeah, he is. will drive. There is a little bit of a certain, I guess, going back to Leotard, right? Because Leotard would see kind of desire as a itself as a will, as the will to power or something. Yeah. I'm not sure how he would formulate. I'm not sure if he would use the word desire, uh, but there was a section, there is, it's number 43 in the uh, the skirmishes or raids section. It's called a quiet, a quiet Hint to Conservatives. I won't quote the whole thing, but it definitely reminded me of Leotard when he says, it cannot be helped, we must go forward, that is to say, step by step further and further into decadence. This is my definition of modern progress. We can hinder this development and by so doing dam up and accumulate degeneration itself and render it more convulsive, more volcanic. We cannot do more. I mean, Leotard doesn't say the line explicitly in libidinal economy, but in the in the uh, putting in perspectives essay, he basically is like, we have to go. We have to go further and deeper into decadence and accelerate it. That's that's like the Nietzschean principle of quote unquote, modern progress, this notion that we can make Germany great again or something like that, right? That we can recover some nostalgia or that that nostalgia can help us recover some lost values and we just need to go back. Nietzsche is definitively saying that's not possible. 
he says the same thing about the Renaissance, right? How the men of the Renaissance, like the Borgias would laugh at our sort of our uh, moral quibbling and, and weakness. He even says it's like we wouldn't physiologically survive the Renaissance. So beware all um, future time travelers. Here's a section that I think kind of taps into what I was kind of referring to relative to, um, to Lacan and, um, and Nietzsche. And it's really the last line. I'm, well, let's see, I'll kind of start here. I'll read the whole little, this was nine. I can't remember which. Let's say, let's say the problem of Socrates. Yeah. But Socrates surmised even more. He saw past his noble Athenians. He grasped that his case, his idiosyncratic case, already wasn't exceptional. The same kind of degeneration was silently preparing itself everywhere. The old Athens was coming to an end, and Socrates understood that all the world had need of him. His means, his cure, his personal device for self-preservation. Everywhere, the instincts were in anarchy. Everywhere, people were five steps away from excess. The monstrum in animo was the general threat. The drives want to play the tyrant. We have to invent a stronger counter-tyrant. So that last line about the drives wanting to play tyrant, I thought was really good. And then having to invent a stronger counter-tyrant. Right. You know, as a joke, but somewhat seriously, I see Lacan as that type of counter-tyrant, right? I think he would. Like I think in his would. personal life, even. Because um, mm-hmm. I sort of joke that, you know, in his personal life, he's kind of honestly like this Ubermensch type character. <laughs> you know, I always talk about how he has a lot of Lacan and um, and Sterner, for example, have a lot of things in common. And Lacan being sort of the, the egoist par excellence. I, I think there's a bit of that same thing here going on. I think um, intellectually, you know, Lacan like Freud shows the tendency both towards a system, which I mentioned earlier, but at the same time, the willingness to revise older um, theses. Right. You know, sometimes the picture of Freud is that he broke with his students over them not following his dictum, like he laid down the law, but, but really it was about just take Jung as an example. It really was fundamental shit, right? That, one of the fundamental theses that Freud wants to see out to the end, see play itself out, is this notion that sexuality is at the basis of neuroses and different pathologies. You know, sometimes that gets made into Freud wanting to sexualize everything. But I think that that's the same kind of misunderstanding as the taken out of context quote that we discussed about Derrida saying there's nothing outside the text. Right. That statement is, I mean, with Freud, at least that statement is, is wrong. It's not Freud that's sexualizing everything. He's seeing how every, everything has this libidinal dynamic. Right. And to to dissociate sexuality and leave it to one side, like it can be bracketed out and still think we can get to the heart of psychical matters. I think for Freud, that is where we do a disservice and, a, and an injustice to life. Right. To speak in Nietzschean terms. Here, my translation does something that Shrakey does. I say my translation. I had all four. I'm talking about the one <laughs> I just the one I just purchased, Ludovici, the Barnes and Noble translation, which has merits. But he Nietzsche uses most often he uses the word instinct in this book, at least. 
Yeah. Sometimes, though, he does use the word Treve, which is more everyday German. Mm-hmm. Here he's using the word Treve. It does kind of piss me off that Ludovici translates it as instincts because for Nietzsche, unlike for Freud, who rarely talks about instincts, right? You know, for Freud, that is not really the basis of discussion for psychical reality. That is for Freud, instinct is the province of the different zoologies, right? Um, not really even anthropology necessarily, but or ethnology, but ethology, right? Which is what Gautry gets into with mm-hmm. birds and imprints. This is why Freud doesn't really say much about it, you know, but he's definitely interested in this notion of drives. And so Nietzsche saying the drives want to play, play tyrant. We have to invent a stronger counter tyrant. This is this notion of in the book, it's a quotation as though, as though Socrates or the Athenians were saying this, right? Right. And I think that what's problematic for Nietzsche is that this is a dangerous game, right? Creating counter tyrants to instinct or sorry, to drive to the drives. Yeah, Um, this is like a. okay. so let me throw this out there just real quick while you're on this track. Kind of reminds me a bit of Lacan's declaration in 68. You know what you revolutionaries really want is is a new master and you'll you shall have one, right? Like there's a certain spiritual overlap, I think, in this phrasing. Yeah. But I'll let, I'll let you. No, I. I tickles your, uh, tickles my, you, all. you know, the, the thing with Nietzsche is that. Back to Lacan, he is this, patri- you know what I mean? He's kind of the patrician type of aristocratic guy that Nietzsche would kind of love, you know? If yeah, I think. A, a certain reading of Ubermensch or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think I think he would. You know, I mean, whether or not Lacan overcame himself biographically, I think we have to leave to one side. Yeah. I mean, notwithstanding what you were bringing up about his, uh, obviously his stature and his celebrity status. And because I think Nietzsche would be much more interested in obviously what Lacan's thinking. I think he would have some of the same critiques that Lacan himself gives of his own writing in the decree, which is same as like Zizek said, which is just basically like it's sort of bullshit i think <laughs> nietzsche would probably hate the decree for that right that it's it's the formalization itself the medium itself is the message right you know what right. i mean like khan is forcing us or or encouraging us to go through this dialectical mirror stage of analysis when we read right. him and, and that's why it's so frustrating and you know i think what nietzsche seems to be describing here with with Socrates's drive is that Socrates himself is symptomatic of what was already starting to boil over in Athens at the time. Yeah. Right. I mean, but it culminates in Socrates, right? So he is kind of the, if you will, he is kind of the counter tyrant to the drives of Athenian democracy. I mean, we know about how he was kind of advocating for a certain return to, um, you know, whether you call the philosopher king or whatever the fuck he was not, even if he's a symptom of Athenian democracy at the same time, he's fighting against those institutions to a certain extent. Right. I mean, Nietzsche himself talks about that with liberal institutions that the drive towards establishing liberal institutions create all of these 
positive virtues, including the height of freedom, you know, because for Nietzsche, he, he even like is foreshadowing here with the five steps. Where's the word? Everywhere people are within five steps of excess. Is that how it is? Yeah. People he, were five steps away from excess. The yeah. monstrum in animo was the general threat. Right. He says later, like the the highest freedom is like five steps away from tyranny from from falling into slavery yeah so i I think that like with socrates what happens is for nietzsche right that the drive to establish noble institutions creates all of these quote-unquote manly virtues but once those institutions are established the instinct the drive that fomented the development of the institutions starts to die out and so we start to we start to have a kind of this is like the beginning of decadence, right? This is mm-hmm. uh, this move for him towards equality, towards sort of leveling all differences is for him the modern crisis. And it goes against his kind of, I say, aristocratic tendency to appreciate the difference in magnitude between, you know, mountain and valley instead of leveling them flat, right? He, his notion of monumental history of quote unquote, great men, great nations, even right. The way he talks about it, there is a kind of aristocratic, you know, if you want to use that word, there is that kind of, he might I like say to merit, call it patrician, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he's, uh, this is why he's not always easy to reconcile with, um, neither with Christianity nor with anarchist theories. Right. We saw what he, he even like has the, the section on Christianity and and anarchism just kind of equally damning of them. Yeah. The Christian wants to find sort of uh, wants to play the blame game and be the cop for himself, take revenge on himself. The anarchist wants to see the put blame on society, take revenge on outside, you know, whether or not that's a helpful measure still today. There's something interesting about just the general way in which life is being judged. And I think Nietzsche says up front, this is his kind of psychological qualm with valuations of life is that you can't step outside life and judge it from some sort of safe and secure beyond. You're, mm-hmm. you're already in the midst of it. And so right. you're sort of biased. Right. And your valuations actually indicate, and I say you're in the royal broad sense. Right. right. Yeah. Not just even in, you know, you one person, because it is obviously linked collectively. This notion that your valuations, our valuations point to a type of life. And like I think skin that's cells on the great ephemeral skin. <laughs> that's kind great. Of how I had that thought the other day. If you kind of look at it as a supraorganism. And yeah, we're just little cells. And yeah, the perspective of the cell, it has its own drive right within the greater whole. But there's a, uh, yeah, I mean, the ephemeral part is also there, right? Right. I think Nietzsche would be, um, would be like happy. Revel, revel in your time, right? To quote uh, mm. Blade Runner, sort of the Roy Batty, right? Oh, yeah, they- you do burn so very brightly, Roy. <laughs> I mean, Nietzsche, Nietzsche would agree with the ephemeral part. He would talk about... You know, when he talks about the sort of how Christianity makes this whole theatrical show of the end of life and becomes all weepy and morose about it, mm-hmm. you know, for him, it's kind of like, don't live past your time. Don't live past the point to where you're too afraid to live, but more afraid to die. 
Right. You know, where where that cowardliness corrupts not only your own valuations of life, but infects others. You know, it's bad vibes. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's how we would say it today, how the kids would talk. That's the kind of shit that he doesn't like with Socrates when, you know, at the end of his life, Socrates is kind of trying to make this joke. I owe Asclepius, I owe the healer a, a rooster to thank him for curing me of the illness of the disease that is life. I think that's where Nietzsche thinks that Socratic irony is actually telling the truth in its joke. And its last laugh, <laughs> the Socratic irony has to be taken at face value that, of course, Socrates would say this about life because he is the symptom of a certain form of life. And we see how Nietzsche talks about dialectics and how it's, you know, this movement of the rabble, how it minimizes, how it, how it is offensive, right, to, um, to intellectual distinctions. And I think that's, that's the crazy thing, right? Because for Nietzsche, I think Nietzsche sees greatness in Socrates, the height of greatness, but also that kind of implies at the same time, the, the distance, the magnitudes, the order of magnitude difference with, with the lowness, the baseness of Socrates, not the baseness, but the, <laughs> but like, you know, um, Nietzsche is able to say that about almost every thinker, right? He sees great things in Hegel and shallow things. He sees, you know, Goethe, he's, he's gentle too, but even Goethe, he takes uh, certain instances with, but with Socrates, he sees great things and the culminations of great movements, but he also sees, he sees almost the prototype of, of a kind of what becomes, it's a prototypical Christian exhaustion saying, thank God I don't have to fucking live anymore. I can go dance with the forms. You know, this notion of a kind of beyond this notion that in this life I may suffer, but in the next life I'll be granted rewarded. Yeah. That kind of shit. Nietzsche, Nietzsche doesn't like that shit, right? He doesn't want to hear about this shit, this sickly hope in this giving up on, this life or another life, right. that kind of yeah, shit exactly. he sees as, as one of the greatest errors, one of the greatest. Um, and, you know, I think that Nietzsche, the way he talks about it is, is a duping or a, or a lack of knowledge. But, you know, I think that if we bring him in line with the Liz and this question about desire is not tricked. You know, I think that he might actually agree with that, that it's better to say kind of with Nietzsche that, there is in this exhaustion with life, this will to exit the, the wheel of existence that he finds in Schopenhauer, he, the pessimism he talks about. I think mm-hmm. that that's desire and that's not yeah. a question of examination or unexamination. You know, I, I think that Deleuze and Guattari have it right. And for the most part, Nietzsche talks in that way, but sometimes he kind of slips into that it's like, whether it be an error or something like that, right? When he talks about the ego as this great fiction, as this great error, which we've seen from the discussion of the conjunctive synthesis, it's not just a epistemological thing, right? There is desire hidden into it that, as he says, Christianity is the metaphysics of the hangman, right? There is this great desire in making, holding people accountable, giving them an ego to hold them to blame. Right. That's the realm of desire before it's a question of um, this is where uh, Foucault sort mm. of a little nugget that Foucault takes off on right a bit well you could talk about it in the death of man I mean like you could... relative to the the repressive hypothesis oh gotcha you know what I mean 
Yeah. And, and even in um, madness and civilization and these other forms of these other inchoate institutional forms of power, knowledge, of course. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Gautari himself talks about how one of the other famous quotes that Nietzsche has, we're not going to get rid of the belief in God until we've gotten rid of our faith and grammar. Yeah. Which I pulled I mean, here as well. Yeah. I could almost hear Lacan saying this too, right? Sure. This, yes. Yeah, I agree. This is very much the type of aphorism that Lacan would, would use. I mean, Guattari himself says to be a, a citizen in a modern state presupposes the competency of a, a certain grammatical competency to obey with laws. Yeah. And if you don't have that competency, you will be corrected. You will be institutionalized, et cetera. I mean, that's, right. that's yeah. part and parcel with Nietzsche's description of the fiction of the ego doing all of this work in order to tie into this metaphysics of the hangman. It's not just Christianity as like a separate thing, like a church apart, right? I mean, like we think of that, maybe, maybe we don't think about it so intimately these days, but you know, the whole history of modern Europe, the whole history of the past two millennia kind of is part of the history of the church. And it's, yeah directly political implications, at least in yes. the West. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Nietzsche was, you know, he's the famous theorist of the abyss, right? Staring into the abyss and it's staring back, all that shit. Yeah. I, I think that that's, that's even like proto-Sartrean, right? The, mm -hmm. the the stuff that we discussed about being free is con being condemned to be free, right? Freedom is, is, and I think that Nietzsche would agree with that. Freedom I mean, obviously, yeah, freedom as a burden rather than a or is it like a responsibility or something? Yes. Almost? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Nietzsche himself talks about a freedom in, in those terms. Freedom that, is a, it, what about it, freedom as a debt? It was well, a debt to oneself, right? I mean, it's about well, becoming responsible about, for oneself. Right. But think about that in terms of libidinal economics. Think about that in terms of, I guess, you know, these sort of semi-capital critique of Baudrillard, et cetera, right? Yeah. The like notions the, of infinite debt that you've we've discussed a bit. I guess that's going to be a bit later in anti-Oedipus. That's true. We'll, we'll obviously Nietzsche takes us that up in the genealogy of morals. And at the end of the book, he has what I owe the ancients. I mean, that is a kind of acknowledgement of a certain debt, right? A certain intellectual debt, a certain debt of intellectual honesty. Yeah. Uh, a certain debt of searching for, because I, I think what Nietzsche wants is when we undertake the quote unquote you know, what Deleuze Guattari would call when we sort of allow the schizophrenic process to continue mm -hmm. and not be held up, you know, not be postponed or, or, or not to kind of circle around and avoid like Freud and Lacan described the drives, right? When, when it's allowed to become infinite variation, I think that's where literally there is nothing to ground us, that the grounding is abyssal if you know what I mean, that it's uh, this is kind of why he talks about light feet and dancing and, 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 and flying and these other things, right. That he quotes um, Flaubert, he quotes and criticizes for one can only think and write while seated. I think that's what he says. Right. And he's like, I don't trust that only good thoughts are uh, what happens while we're out on a walk. Doesn't he say something like that? Yeah, it's number 34 in the Maxims. Flaubert says, one can only write, think and write while seated. And he says, here I've got you, you nihilist. 
sedentary life is the real sin against the Holy Spirit. Only those thoughts that come by walking have any value. What's a better yeah. model of neurotic on the couch or a schizophrenic on a walk? That's it that's, right there. That's like literally, you know, it's yeah. funny to see that, right? <laughs> I mean, that that's it right there. That's Nietzsche's that, that, but that again, kind of goes back to what I was saying about the, the transvaluation of all values is not something that can be sedentary. Obviously someone like Deleuze though would kind of say, well, one can be nomadic while staying at home. You know, I mean, like we can make fun of him for that, or we can try to say that in some ways, if you look at Deleuze's development over time and his work with uh, Guattari, you know, he is a good example of not simply going to your ivory tower and writing philosophy books. Very true. Right. Yeah. Um, Whether or not he traveled is merely a, a metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. A myriad, an analogy of what Nietzsche is talking about when he says only those thoughts that come by walking have any value. It's not necessarily just a literal meaning that we got to walk around. We got to be peripatetic. That's how Aristotle taught, right? He had all his students walking with him. I mean, yeah, that's one level of the meaning, but obviously another level is that dialectic of, um, of the sedentary and the nomadic, which we will already start to see more and more of in Anti-Oedipus, two different ways of occupying space is kind of how Deleuze and Guattari will discuss it. The striated, stratified space of chess versus the open space of Go, that's that's another example they kind of use. I think that's more of what Nietzsche is, is talking about is this, this notion of a nomadic distribution. I mean, Deleuze sees in Nietzsche, he sees in Nietzsche one of the great thinkers of the dice throw. He also sees that obviously in, in, in Meyer May with the shipwreck. This is why we keep coming back to, to Nietzsche because also reading Nietzsche, I think what, what I think of when, I, when he says only those thoughts that come through walking have any value is like when you read Nietzsche, you do have to stay on your toes. I mean, he's not just talking about other people and their bullshit. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you are face to face with your own fucking bullshit, your own ways of dissimulating, your own ways of hiding, your own cowardice, your own decadent and, well, exhausted means of valuation, right? This, that's what Nietzsche is kind of, he wants us to take a hammer to ourselves too. We're not just taking a hammer to our idols and our ego ideals and all this stuff. I mean, we, we have to. It's the headless torso of Apollo, right? That Rilke talks about. That's staring at us from its navel. We we must we must change our life. That's the hard part of existentialism. It's it's fun to say like, oh well, existence precedes essence, so I can be whatever the fuck I want. Yeah, that's fucking hard, mm-hmm. right? That's that's terrifying. That's the abyss. Right. Yeah, that you are ultimately responsible for your own everything. Yeah, or or barring. A lot of yeah. shit is about eschewing responsibility. Sure. And we all do fall into safety, that, right? Safety in numbers. Right. There is security in, in falling back on, oh, I have an ego. I am this. I am not that. I have a name. I have a history. All that facticity shit that can lull us into this fiction that therefore I have to or I should be like this rather than, you know, what Nietzsche is talking about with this notion of will to power, where it is about increasing our capacities for, for life, for valuation, for thought, for feeling. I mean, this is why in the end, Nietzsche always comes back to art, right. And the movement of art and 
how man, how humans are the ones that are the, you know, that are beautifying nature and finding it there, putting it there and finding it there and sort of therefore that's the Baudrillardian moment, moment I've had the other night when he was talking about art and how uh, nature is not the nature in and of itself is a beautiful, that first order of simulacrum that Baudrillard talks about with the counterfeit trying to art, trying to imitate nature. And as we know with Baudrillard, that's only the first layer, right? So, you know, whether Nietzsche would agree with the analysis of the code and simulation and all this other stuff, I think he would agree that whether we call it structural value or not, transvaluation doesn't imply an origin to look back at, to restore, or even a purpose towards which we should aspire that's already there, mm-hmm. right? It's, it, that would be anathema to the process. And there's no God to guarantee stability of, or the mirror, right, that we discussed. All of mm-hmm. that is, all of that has to be put on the chopping block. All of those are idols that, that halt the process in a void, in a bad way. I mean, to think about this in, in our own day, I think you can see this, this operates in the way that people kind of cling to gender as the binary uh, sort of divisor dividing right. up of, yeah, of the it's world. Like, oh, uh, the anger towards pronouns is that's out of fear. You of know, course. Post-structuralism, post-modernism in a sense really is <laughs> destroying Western civilization. Uh, yes, because it's calling into question its fundamental assumptions about itself, which are sort of smoke and mirrors. Right. Yeah. I think that, you know, for talk about origins, right? The false origin false origin of, of a simple binary logic of rely of it's again, this belief in God that is ballasting our faith and grammar, right? Our faith, our faith, that, I mean, literally the pronouns that's grammar. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Literally the, the belief that pronouns are sort of given by God. And we see this more so in romantic languages. Or even non, if, even if you're taking the sort of uh, atheistic, the quote unquote science, the Richard Dawkins science, because even Dawkins is criticizes pronouns in the transsexual community, et cetera. He's the most pious atheist. Yes, there is. <clears throat> yeah. Nietzsche would have a lot, a lot of oh, things to day, say right? <laughs> with, with Dawkins. And I think that obviously for him, there is, I mean, just it's inevitable, right? That linguistic conventions would be overturned, but it's, it's interesting that those are the most deeply ingrained. Those are the ones we take for granted the gendered pronouns, we take that as proof of the fact that there is gender. And Nietzsche would call that one of the, one of the great errors. He would say, that's a fucking error, either a causality or, or yeah, right. That you, since language functions by these binary divisions, therefore they are out in the world. And so they can't be changed and they're ironclad. Nietzsche would laugh at that shit. That's, that's just a great error. And, um, to think that you're sort of destroying God's handiwork by transitioning or choosing your pronouns or even creating neo pronouns. I think in the end, you know, I could see Nietzsche on the one hand saying that's a movement of decadence and on the other saying we have to keep going. Right. Yeah, you have exactly. to keep pushing that further. Yes, exactly. Um, so that's what obviously conservatives want to do when they say, oh, fucking pronouns in the bio every time, you know, that that is their way of shutting off. That is their way of saying this is irrational or you are a 
an advocate of irrationality, therefore you are not worth the time to discuss ideas with when really in a certain way, they're the ones that are shutting, they're the ones that are, that are keeping a hard space for their bubble. They are not going to go outside of that binarity. And as you said, that's what threatens them. That, that threatens the worldview that is supported by all this. That threatens, you said that threatens their ego, but it also threatens their God. Yeah, their which, world. Is the, which is origin, right? Which goes back to the true world and the right. Yeah, well, but also my aphorism about what's the first thing that simulated it's the name of God, because we can't, there's like an off there, sort of a way to almost the sacrifice of um, the way that Christ is sacrificed. Like yeah, we sacrifice right. God to sort of clear out our own consciousness, our own, <laughs> like our certain, our own fear at being, free in the sort of Sartrean sense. Right. Um, or yes, we have the, to offload our own behavior onto, right. It's too, the radical freedom of existence is just too overwhelming. So you create God to offload as this other, and then that sort of morphs and, and changes over time and proliferates. I mean, I, I think that, you know, for Nietzsche, early peoples, ancient peoples had a need for God as a kind of expression of their singularity, of their strength, need for all kinds of gods, not just the monotheist one, obviously. Mm -hmm. And those gods had to be the expression of the drives or of the instincts of the peoples to give themselves laws and rules for perpetuating their their lineages. That was a necessity. and 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 those laws couldn't come from just say a chieftain or even a king Hammurabi or some shit, right? It had to come down divinely because otherwise that otherwise the simulation of values could have gone on indefinitely. Right. So the process had to be stalled at a certain point for, as you said, for security, for quote unquote rationality. And I think band sort of vibe as well, like keeping that to a certain certain equilibrium or yeah, our certain equilibrium of intensity. Yeah, I agree. And I think for Nietzsche, it's obvious this is why he talks about he doesn't talk about God exists. God does not exist. Talks about the death of God, the death of the gods. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, this is the twilight of the idols, right? When we see that those are sort of false walls put up to prevent becomings. Thinking about this the other day gave me the inspiration for that vision of being a skin cell on the ephemeral skin because some cells on the ephemeral skin can gain a certain perspective, but then they're gone. And so the whole body, the whole body without organs has to be transformed or like, in a sense, it can't just be a handful of cells. Like it has to be the whole thing. The once the whole right. thing, get, for example, the death of God has to perpetuate through all of the, the entire skin. It just can't be just a handful of cells. Those cells will die or whatever. So it's kind of working on that way and that slow sort of metastasis. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's the, exactly. It's the slow metastasis throughout the unconscious, you know, to use another right. register. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's that the death of God takes, it's like traveling light years. Yeah, it's going to go through the I mean? machinic unconscious as a, as a sort of supra construct. I mean, I think that's a good analogy for the light we see from the farthest stars are, have been dead for millions, if not billions of years. Right. But they still, but they still brighten our sky. Twilight of the idols. Literally. Yeah. So (laughs) I think that that's part of the death of that's part of the death of God is that we're still living in the shadow or the luminosity of this light that has 
since, that, since that, whose sources died out, right? right or, right. you know, yeah. who's already transformed into that's exactly right. And that is also mm. the question of the libidinal band heating up. Right? I mean, I think Nietzsche's like, it has to keep heating. We, we can't forget that it is continually in a process of heating and that our little representational seats that we may have right now are, are also a, you know, a product of that. Yeah. Yeah. If you can get into entropy and heat death and sort of that stuff, thermodynamics there too, relative to the band, you have to keep the band heated up or it's once the universe cools down entirely, right. Then it's all there's death. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the fucking. Once you sort of get, you can't let things get fixed for too long or if it's they the cool fire down it, too much. Yeah. It's the death by fire or ice, right? It's a uh... song of ice and fire. Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking more <laughs> of a, uh, but that, yeah, that's the thing. Whether the, the universe will, have I told you there's, uh, I don't know if astronomers still debate this astrophysicists in the nineties, there was this, there's this constant it's called the Omega constant. And it all revolves around how quickly the universe is either collapsing in on itself or, um, or continually speeding and uh, falling apart. Right. right. Uh, yeah. Now, if the constant is below one, that means the universe is collapsing. From what we know from our data based on red and blue shifts, we know that the omega constant is above one or seems to be above one. And therefore, the universe is kind of continually uh, speeding up in its separation. Right. It's yeah. expansion. Right. Like now, the great, rip sort I, of is the the great, the great theological wager is that the omega constant is one, which means that at a certain point of the expansion of the universe, it will sort of not rubber band back in on itself, but kind of reach this nice, peaceful equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And that's the, it's obviously a theological proponent because it is this, again, it's this will to uh, think while seated, right? As Nietzsche talks about, it's this kind of happy point where there won't be the cycle of eternal return. That there will that that things will stop becoming and will just be the be, universe yeah. will finally just say all right that's cool this is enough space right or something like that and that I'm using that analogy as like just kind of an analogy for for Nietzsche's process of eternal return of the transvaluation of all values that that's a happy dream that somehow transvaluation could be like okay those are values. There, you're, you know, you're good. You can, you can take a seat now. You can stop becoming that kind of happy dream is I think for him, that's, that's why the, why idleness is this vice, right. That leads to all of these sickly corrupt valuations of life. It's to go back to, and he even has this discussion of instinct and rationality that reminded me a lot of the, uh, the, pain box from dune and the whole logic behind the test being that you as a if you're a human being you will overcome the physical sensation of pain with your mind rather than if you're an if you're an animal you will immediately allow instinct to withdraw your hand from the box yes gotcha thus, ki- gotcha. thus killing yourself so i don't know there's a certain along with that right there's the ver- very nietzschean quote the sleeper must awaken is mm. in a sense is this call about not the same call here about not being seated or not being sedentary and to that we need to move and change in order to grow as a 
person and as a as an organism yeah person i mean nietzsche is still thinking and a lot of times nietzsche will betray his study of kant even if he talks shit about kant all the time when mm-hmm. i don't think it's in this book it's in another work where he brings up this interesting Kantian observation that nature doesn't give a shit about individuals. It cares about species. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, which goes to to capitalism. Here's the thing, because capitalism, if we're ceding the territory that capitalism is quote unquote natural, then. Right. Okay. Gotcha. You see what I'm saying? Say, say what you're, what repeat what you were saying. I kind of lost my train of thought. I don't forget no, why I brought that up, but I had a good point. You're, no, you're great. And maybe this will um, key it up again, you know, I, in, in another work, but it could fit in here easily. He's kind of paraphrasing Kant and saying nature doesn't care about individuals. But oh, okay. It, what it cares yeah. about is, is species and the, the movement of species. And I mean, right. if, you, if you take a. Well, see, my point was you, capitalism doesn't care about individuals either. It yes, cares about yes. it cares about the whole of itself. Right. its own reproduction. That's a good point. So yes. why I say that, it's always the complaint or the criticism of communism is communism at least gives lip service to caring about individuals, about workers, right? I guess liberalism or capitalism gives lip service to serving the individual, but it only serves its own reproduction, which if you're considering, you know, which if you're thinking of it as a body without organs, is it the body without organs or is it just a a body without organs? Right. Is it just a particular configuration of the libidinal band? Yeah. I mean, that 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 type of that, I think, is something, again, well, I'm not willing yeah, to I mean, we discuss can't <laughs> yet only only because it would take right, right. a few hours and episodes. But because because <laughs> because we are going to talk more and more about yeah, yeah. body thought organs in our any episodes but but yes I, I i that's how i would just say it. like is it is capital not just the latest configuration uh, the the latest dominant configuration of the little band and we take it therefore as self-evident right it's yeah. self-evidence is can't be what is uh used to call it natural it, it, there's almost like a Ah, oh, yeah, I got you. There's almost like a twisting of of logic there. I mean, mm-hmm. even Nietzsche, Nietzsche himself. To get back to what you were discussing about the the binaries, this is the section w- where he, you know, says the thing about grammar and the death of God. But he says, "Uh, reason, quote unquote, in language." Right? He finds that to almost be a contradiction in and of itself. Right? That one would presuppose language to be rational therefore it is the guide to rationalizing nature and the universe and the world and that is a way of sedimenting value yeah which is a very based on a self-evidence there's a very post-structuralist tinge to that idea right yeah or or the questioning of that idea yeah right that that I think that what Nietzsche wants us, he wants us to be aware of how much we are actively valuating Mm -hmm. life. For example, he wants us to be aware of the fact that, that our valuations are not in and of themselves rational, right? They're, they're an expression of 
a certain form of life, their expression of a certain configuration of the drives of mm-hmm. our instincts or our counter instincts, right? Morality, for example, is anti-natural against nature. That's kind of what he's, yeah. he's getting at. And when he says nature there, he's really talking about this, that, that our own strength, our own ability for self-overcoming. And if I'm over here thinking that I have, you know, some ego that is always already participating in the original crime of original sin, whether it be Adam and Eve or wherever the fuck, if, if that's how my valuations are, you know, founded upon yeah. all these little axioms of, uh, of sort of moral modern Christian notions, then there is a sense in which free thinking as Nietzsche is telling us about, or Nietzsche is trying to show us an example of, would itself be a sin? I mean, what would be more kind of edgy and simple than to discuss the death of God? You know, is even discussing these ideas within a certain traditionalist framework not evidence of eternal damnation waiting us, right? I mean, it's kind of, this is why Nietzsche always talks about the criminal who doesn't have, in retrospect, the strength of the crime he committed, right? You're on your deathbed and you're asking God, you know, you're taking the sacrament on your deathbed and finally saying, didn't mean any of all that. I'm a good <laughs> Christian now. And I mean, and based on the parables of like the prodigal son, that person right. confessing on their deathbed and taking sacrament and wanting to be saved, all of that stuff potentially should get you just as much heaven as a believer from birth. Right. And I think that Nietzsche finds in both of those, both of those types of life is problematic, right? We, you know, not having the strength to think outside a certain box that was pre-designed for us, mm-hmm. whether it be fear or uh, fear of retribution, fear from from either other, from either the the wider collective or from some god that's held over us. You know that I don't think I think for Nietzsche that's that's where you that's where the most corrupt valuations of life are bred. I dig it. Since we're talking about Darwin, we we should look at that Darwin section. I think it's 14 in skirmishes. His main thing against Darwin is that there is a kind of optimism that somehow the strongest survive. Right. And for Nietzsche, it's in fact the, the weaker, weak. the one with more numbers that survive. It's but but there is a kind of strength. There's a cleverness. In numbers. There's a cleverness in in the in the weak in their overcoming. Right. Because they, through movement, they have to overcome themselves in a sense. Yeah, he says they overcome their own weakness. Darwin forgot the intellect. That is English. The weak have more intellect. In order to acquire intellect, one must be in need of it. One loses it when one no longer needs it. Right. And this is why intellect means to to me caution, patience, craft, assimilation, great self-control and everything related to memory or mimicry. Nietzsche's main point is, again, this sort of false notion that whether it be biologically, everything works out for the best, right? That species are the, the efflorescence of the, of the highest types. Nietzsche wants to call that into question. It's not that there's not beauty in, in the weak um, sort of coming out on top, but that to pretend that's the same thing as talking about the great types that he is describing is a kind of sleight of hand. The point that he brings up about evolution not being a mechanism for the perfection of organisms, 
Yes. Because I think that is how a lot of people misunderstand how evolution works. You know, I mean, you see this kind of in the Nick Lamb, the kind of, it's assuming a certain perfection with when that's not how evolution works exactly. This sort of very Darwinist, what is it, survival of the fittest attitude towards evolution more. So necessity is the mother of invention, right? Yeah. And you, if you're Superman and you can just destroy everything, right? There's no, there's no movement. There's no growth. There's only sediment. Oh, you can only become sedimentized or whatever. Yeah. There's no self-overcoming. There's no struggle. I mean, that's exactly. one of the reasons why sometimes Superman isn't, in my opinion, the most interesting right, superhero yeah, in the comic uh, book world. And, and, and although they do come up with, sometimes interesting ways of challenging his uh his abilities which the best way to challenge his ability like my idea for the superman movie is to do apocalypse now where he has to sort of reluctantly kill zod at the end Mm. and that's about his journey sort of up the river and it's almost oedipal and it's right killing the sort of own father figure but i mean that's present in the story as far as oh yeah in the novel and the movie as it yeah. goes with, uh, I forget, Man of Steel. I was thinking Apocalypse Now as well, or Heart of Darkness, but yeah, gotcha. Man of Steel, yeah. That's a good point. You can even see that with Dawkins and the stuff about memes and genes. It's not necessarily the that the quote-unquote more perfect meme or the or the quote-unquote better meme, whatever the fuck that means, is the one yeah. that is, is the one that circulates most with most velocity. Sometimes dumbness and, and idiocy and, and sort of superficiality have have advantages over yes, something more integrated. Right. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you can see that operating in so many scales, Twitter, any kind of market. Yes. And that's how we humanity relies on this, these lot, especially relative to the market, it's that it can that it in general is going to tend towards making the crowd will ultimately make in general, the right decision on any particular transaction. So we rely on others to, as a form of trust, because it's all about networks of trust when it comes to commerce or trading, capitalism, et cetera. It's all about trust, trust in institutions, trust in the other party, trust in the currency, et cetera, et cetera. Whenever we see others doing something, it could be a dumb thing. It could be something stupid. So the history of an error right? This notion of a true world, quote unquote. First stage is the true world attainable to the sage, the pious man and the man of virtue. He lives in it. He is it. I Plato and the truth. It's great. That is where we kind of discuss a little bit, you know, whether we talk about the allegory of the cave or the allegory about souls after death spending, you know, 30, 40,000 years led by their God and they come back with the knowledge of the idea that they are capable of this, this, this interesting notion that um, really the true world is only accessible to the philosopher. I think is kind of what Nietzsche is saying. It's only the philosopher after dedicating their life. Can they have a provisional access to the forms and after death sort of live eternally with the forms, which is in fact the true world. The world of the forms, not this world that, that we are in here now, right? Yeah. Not, you know, all that is reflections. 
So not yet in simulacrum, right? Not yet in simulation, as Baudrillard talks about it. Not even that first order with counterfeiting and all that shit. Mm-hmm. Or maybe in a certain reading of Plato that, but it's, it's not negative. It's not like you're counterfeiting a hammer by looking to the ideal form of the hammer to make one, right? You know, that's, hmm. I don't so know like, if that's, it's, yeah, it's. So truth is not a simulation or a simulacrum? Not for Plato, right? And in a certain sense, truth or the forms, the good, the beautiful, all of that puts a halt to mad becomings. Would, would sort of circumscribe or would really what Plato is talking about is devise the philosopher is the one who takes a stand on truth and thereby formulates means by which to show that simulacrum, if they participate in the forms at all, are in fourth, fifth, sixth place. So really what Plato is wanting to do is to devise rules for contests, logical dialectical contest to show to show who gets for who gets second rank because as we said with will obviously the idea isn't first always you know what i'm saying so simulacra of the idea they're in fifth sixth seventh rank they they don't really place god is always <laughs> first is, that would almost be god is the first thing that the first simulation yeah i mean if if, if you christianize plato then yeah right because God would be the sort of sum of all ideas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Something like that. I mean, speaking very broadly. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, obviously with Plato, he's still using the pantheon of gods allegorically. But there is also a, there is also some areas of Plato where he reveals that he doesn't, he has like, he's an atheist in terms of, or at least with Socrates, he's kind of an atheist in terms of, um, he keeps up appearances, right, by believing in the pantheon. He, he pretends to believe, but there is a one could argue for a type of monotheism in Plato that would be anti-Greek in a certain sense, right, or anti-Greek at the time. You want to read the second one? The true world, unattainable for now, but promised to the wise, the devout, the virtuous, to the sinner who does penance. Progress of the idea. It becomes more refined, more devious, more mystifying. It becomes woman. It becomes Christian. Yeah. So this is why he also rails against like Pascal with Pascal's wager. You know, I was raised that one can't believe in God and Jesus and the Christian faith, all that shit based on wanting fire insurance this is one Protestant way of rejecting Pascal's wager. You, it can't be like this hypothetical of, well, I guess it's, it's, Pascal's wager isn't even really fire insurance. Fire insurance is you're, you're afraid of burning in hell. Yeah. And that, that's why you do good things. That's why you're a good person. I mean, Nietzsche would, would criticize this too. Obviously Pascal's wager is, is really more of a logical <laughs> than a theological. It's not fire insurance insofar as he doesn't postulate you know, if you're wrong, you'll burn in hell. It's more positive, right? It's like, if you're right, you fucking win the jackpot. Yeah. So why not believe? There's no harm in, yeah. There's no harm in believing. I mean, for Nietzsche, there obviously is. There's no right? cost, I guess. For, There's no for, cost to believe. Except the cost of your freedom. Right. In but terms I mean, of, on of its thinking, own, by evaluating. Its own, yeah, right. right. But by its own logic, there's no cost. 
to belief. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're cool with going with the flow. Right. And sometimes we all, we all, we all have moments when we fall into that, but that's for Nietzsche. That's not what philosophy as he conceives it or philosophizing with the hammer. You can't philosophize with the hammer. If you're going to, if you're going to be cool with Pascal's wager, right. If you're going to stay on the level of this notion that even thinking outside the box, just to use a phrase is a sin. Yeah. I know. I mean, I think Nietzsche would say like, well, shit, you know, uh, of course I want to go to hell. That's where all the cool people are going to (laughs) be. Right. You know, that number three, the true world, unattainable, unprovable, unpromisable, but a consolation and obligation and imperative merely by virtue of being thought the old sun, basically, but glimpsed through fog and skepticism. The idea becomes sublime, pallid, Nordic, Kernigsbergian, right? (laughs) Kantian. Which is a funny little shot at Kant. That's hilarious. Well, I think that by Nietzsche's time, it must have become common knowledge that Kant never really left Königsberg. Yeah. You know, that he he had his daily walk. He had his routine. You know, he, he stuck to it. He was prolific, right? Productive. You can't even just say like, oh, Kant's fucking stupid. No. Yeah. I mean, he was, I think Nietzsche thinks Kant's like overly clever clever to a fault with his with his systematizations and his Uh, categoricals and then of course Nietzsche in some parts of this book kind of said what I said last last week basically saying how Kant is is a cop he wants to deduce the categorical imperative from within sort of the the structure of humanity Mm -hmm. and impose that as logically sound and this is why Nietzsche says Kant brings God back in through the back door. Kant outlaws ontological proofs of God. He slips in God with the ethical categorical imperative, right? You know, this, you know, Kant formulates it that acted such a way that if what you will were universalized, you know, shit wouldn't go crazy, right? If everybody did the shit that you did, would society last, right? Because Kant's main founding principle is consistency. You have to have a base rational consistency to even move forward in thinking. Sartre makes it much, much scarier. He's like, he. This is why we need the name of God, just to throw yeah, that little. There you go. Yeah. There. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the, when Sartre bec- at his most Kantian, when he is trying to formulate ethics, which he struggled with his whole life, which I think Nietzsche too is struggling with any one ethic that could fit either everyone or even one person over a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, Sartre is most terrifying when he says, really the categorical imperative means act as though everybody is watching you at all times. That's the fucking paranoid shit that Sartre makes content to, you know, act as though you're being looked at when you're looking through the keyhole, right? Damn. Like that, and that's, that kind the, of- and that's the hyper real gaze to mm-hmm. that, like, Baudrillard talks about. You know, Santa, God, they're always watching, right? They're they're taking notes on your little mm-hmm. picadillos and your little your little desires. You know, um, you know, Jesus has the shit that he says about desire, right? It's if you have lust in your heart, you might as well have done the action. Right. That's how I Nietzsche Nietzscheanize him. But that's he's not necessarily saying like if you have adultery in your heart, go do it. It's just that if you have the lust, that's already sin. Right. right. If you've already got that desire. And that's 
why Nietzsche says Christianity is, is the kind of cult of castration. It's the cult of, he brings up the maxim, like if your eye offend, they pluck it out. He says like, luckily Christians don't take this, you know, by to the letter, right? You don't just, you're not just uh, cutting off body parts that offend you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have crueler torture devices to keep the Schraber child from masturbating and shit like that, right? You don't have to cut off his arms if you can strap him down. I didn't mean to get dark, but sometimes, you, <laughs> sometimes Nietzsche, you got to go through the darkness. You know, right. you got you to gotta have the dark night of the soul. Number four. The true world, unattainable. In any case, unattained. And if it is unattained, it is also unknown. And hence, it is not consoling, redeeming, or obligating either to what could something unknown obligate us. Gray dawn, first yawnings of reason, rooster's crow of positivism. Nietzsche is saying, how could the noumenon, the thing in itself, obligate us, right? It's kind of, that's the next step after Kant, once you kind of prune the critical system. Number five, the true world, quote unquote, an idea with no use anymore, no longer even obligating, an idea become useless, superfluous, hence a refuted idea. Let's do away with it. It's kind of Occam's razor, right? Bright day, breakfast, return of good sense and cheerfulness. Plato blushes, pandemonium of all free spirits. I like the Plato blushes. That's <laughs> that's kind of nice, you know, because Plato sees with Socrates, as, as we said, right, calling life this long illness, you know, Nietzsche sees in that certain seeds of Christian thought, right? This notion that the kingdom of heaven, the afterlife is the true life. Once you get rid of that, then you can't wager on this notion that this life doesn't matter. This life's not the one that matters. I think that for Nietzsche, that, that's the height of the sort of ecstatic, intoxicating idea of eternal return. I put it to someone, a friend of ours, call her A. I put it to her that the way I try to turn Nietzsche into a thought experiment is like, okay, what if you were faced with the realization, I don't know if you're doing whippets or you're tripping on acid or some shit, that you have to relive your life infinitely without being able to change anything. Is your first reaction suffering and anguish uh, in the negative sense, not in like any Sartrean, you know, freedom shit sense? Yes. Is, is, is it suffering? Is it, does that immediately ruin the rest of your life or your infinite lives, right? Is that just a bad trip or do you rejoice, right? Because I think for Nietzsche, you can't say, oh, things could have been different. He's kind of a spinosist in a certain sense where it's like, no, all that shit was necessary. That whole chain of being, you have to affirm the whole if you're going to affirm any one particular moment. Yeah. I think that's where Nietzsche is very demanding of us, right? And, and especially in our weakest moments, right? It's like that Job moment where things have been taken away from you, people, friends, family, your livelihood, you're left alone with your faith. And of course, there's that moment where you do say like, why, why God? And God smacks you on the head, you know? Did you make the fish in the sea? Did you make the fucking Leviathans? You don't know why. There's not a moral reason for why i'm doing this shit to you okay have all the have all your stuff back times two right like there's a happy ending for job i see job as as standing out very particularly 
from the whole, from the rest of the Bible, besides maybe like Ecclesiastes at points where it's like, you can't apply moral reasoning to the universe and the way things quote unquote are. You you can't, if you do that, you are wearing rose colored glasses. And he's just kind of saying many of the same things that because all of Job's neighbors are like, man, Job, you must've really done some bullshit to be punished. And we find out that no, that's not, that's not how it is. There's one more though, right? There's a six. Yeah. I've got it. I've got it down here. And I'll let you read that one. We have done away with the true world. What world is left over the apparent one? Maybe, but no, along with the true world, we have also done away with the apparent. And this is probably the most, Oh wait, let me, let me finish this midday moment of the shortest shadow end of the longest error high point of humanity Incipit Zarathustra. And this is the most uh, Baudrillardian, I think. Yeah. Of them yeah. all. Yeah, this is, this gets back to the root of why we decided to read this, this little, <laughs> this little book, which is, I say little, it's short in terms of page numbers, but it is bursting at the seams, right? Yeah. You know, uh, it is over full of implications and, and Nietzsche talks about, philosophy as ruminating like a cow right that some ideas are not easily digested he he even uses that metaphor throughout the book right about sort of you know the english sensibility of you know life being for happiness which is just a consequence of good digestion or some shit right this notion that certain ideas have to be chewed on and mulled over even like the death of god taking a long time to travel through the unconscious could just be that it takes a long time to digest in our uh, bovine four stomachs and that indigestibility isn't of an idea or of evaluation or whatever, isn't necessarily a refutation because some of Nietzsche is indigestible. (laughs) Sometimes Nietzsche, you come away with Nietzsche laughing. Sometimes you come away uh, feeling anxiety, feeling, you know, you're constantly calling yourself into question, calling other valuations into question it's difficult and Nietzsche responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. And Nietzsche reserves the right to contradict himself on various levels. Maybe fundamentally you could get down to a point where he doesn't, but Nietzsche is not, you know, it's not about picking and choosing from the the Nietzsche. (laughs) Right. It's not about, it's not about saying like, well, I like certain parts of Nietzsche, but this other stuff, you know, in a certain sense, you have to affirm the whole, I mean, this is kind of why Larwell begins by saying we're all fascist readers of Nietzsche. We're all revolutionary readers of Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche thought is a, is a machine. It's tough. It's a different struggle for me reading Nietzsche than reading Hegel. Right. Yeah. When I'm reading Hegel, I struggle over the way in which the words are phrased. Yeah. When I finally feel like I get to the idea part of Hegel I feel there's like a certain joy of overcoming the barrier of the language <laughs> itself. It's like reading yeah. the fucking Acree, right? With Lacan, you know, I think with Nietzsche, he's, he's kind of on the opposite end where he is right. so seductive in his yeah. writing, so interesting and so overflowing with ideas that we can get enamored with the image of the words and the movement of the words. I like, you know, we can hyper-focus on his poetic side and fail to do the legwork the lifting of the ideas, which that's part of his genius. 
and how a lot of times thinking does not, I mean, real thinking, learning, as Deleuze would say, doesn't, doesn't occur consciously, yeah. right? It's in the unconscious. Nietzsche is planting seeds. He's fucking flinging seeds and he's trying to disseminate the ideas. And sometimes they take root on different soil, as we know. You know, I was just thinking, I forgot to mention this on the prior one relative to eternal return. I don't know if you've ever read the book by Vonnegut, um, Timequake. No. Sounds so with, cool. Within Timequake, yeah, we should do it. It's a shorter, it's a short read. But yeah, it's kind of the timequake that occurs is basically basically people have to go through the last year of their lives and have no choice but to do it again. Everything. Mm-hmm. And it's going through so and so he's you know you know how Vonnegut kind of writes and this sort yeah. of folksiness to it. But he describes sort of so-and-so has to gargle Drano. They drank Drano to kill themselves. And so-and-so's wife is going to have to gargle Drano again and blah, blah, blah. Just as an example of all these kind of activities that have to be re-experienced with little choice in the matter. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a kind of novelistic version of Eternal Return. You know, I except... Nietzsche doesn't make it easy for us and reduce it to a, to, to one year. Right. But yeah. Yeah. Nevertheless, a good book. Well, I think it's actually Vonnegut's last book, but back to this quote, I think here, you know, you can see, and I think Baudrillard would agree that along with the true world, we've done away with the apparent. Yes. Because that gets into the whole Borges, the map and the territory. Right. Motif. And there is this, reluctance to mourn the loss of the real or the true world rather mourning it does you no good even for Baudrillard I think I think mourning or the nostalgia itself is an expression of a type of life is maybe what Nietzsche would say that it's an expression of a certain valuation it's a certain degeneracy and what Nietzsche worries because obviously we're going to always have we're going to always slip and fall into those we're always going to fall short. We can't infinitely affirm everything at all times. We have those human, all too human weak points filled with sad passions and regret, and et cetera. But I think that like, this is why Deleuze tries to take Nietzsche with Spinoza and, and find a, a philosophy of affirmationism, you know, to, to put it loosely, to urge us to see. I think what Deleuze and Guattari would say is you can see in nostalgia how even just in our time with Make America Great Again, how that itself can easily invest a reactionary means of reestablishing an old body without organs or a new body that's based on a distorted, quasi-fascistizing view of the past. How do you use history? How do you abuse history is, is one of Nietzsche's fundamental questions. And Nostalgia can easily, very easily lend itself to these investments in and reactionary modes of living and modes of being. And, uh, and I think that like, if we're going to have nostalgia, we should put it to some good use. We should be critical of how we use it. And this is why he's pretty harsh against the conservatives by saying, like, you can only plug a hole in decadence, but you're really just damming it up and going to make it. Yeah, uh, you, it's going to spill out somewhere. You, yeah. It's it's going to become more. You're just going to intensify the pressure by trying to halt progress, right? That you're you're damming up desire is going to have explosive consequences, right? And um, yeah, like whack a mole sort of. 
This is why also Duels of Guatri and A Thousand Plateaus define zones of power by what is allowed to leak in terms of desire. And that it's that's the most dangerous thing for zones of power, power in the sort of negative sense, right? Because for Nietzsche, will to power is not about seizing power for oneself. It's not about, it's really about pushing oneself to overcome oneself. Mm-hmm. That's, and there is cruelty to it, right? I think that that's, that's the thing we, sometimes we, we can think, you know, just to juxtapose with the Nietzsche, Spinoza, Deleuze thing and affirmationism, there is cruelty in it and in, in the yes, right? There is, there is, you know, Nietzsche opposes the yes of the donkey that is like forced to carry its burden with the yes that comes after a no, or that's not opposed to a no, but like conjoined with it. So I'll I'll read this just real quickly. This is things the Germans lack. You observe that it is my desire to be fair to the Germans because the first paragraph he kind of says, here's some good things about the Germans. And in this respect, I should not like to be untrue to myself. I must therefore also state my objections to them. It costs a good deal to attain a position of power for power stultifies. So that's, and he goes on and he's going to talk shit about the empire, right? He's going to kind of talk shit about the warlike nature of the Germans. But uh, yeah, power, this is why it's great in French to have two words for power or in Latin. It's good to distinguish a certain form of power over others, right? Certain sort of, whether it be cop mentality or however you want to call it. And then a certain power in the Spinoza sense, right? Of Fanatis, of question of what a body can do, things like this, right? What power is, degrees of perfection and these other things. Maybe we'll end with an aphorism. But in end with this one, what you're searching, you'd like to multiply yourself 10 times, 100 times. You're looking for followers. Look for zeros. Epigrams and arrows, number 14. Obviously, it goes by itself that we would r- relate this to Leotard and the Great Zero. But it goes back to this question of, of heresy that Nietzsche cultivates, right? You know, if you want to follow me, you have to lose me. And that willingness, I mean, I think that look for zeros is a part of that conjunctive synthesis that we were talking about. Instead of saying, like, I want to reproduce my image into the world or, you know, like the the 14 words of the, the KKK or whatever. Right. I want to reproduce. I want to I want to secure the future for white children and shit like that. That's looking to multiply oneself 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. That's the kind of power to be wary of. And so Nietzsche saying, look for zeros, right? There is a sense in which, too, that, you know, he, it's the same thing as him saying, like, dying with dignity, right? Should be this possibility. It shouldn't be foreclosed, right? To die at the height of one's power when one is still exulting and rejoicing in life rather than to die at the end weeping and gnashing and and cursing life that's that's the kind of thing that Nietzsche is is warning us about we will wrap up there and this has been the machinic unconscious happy hour with cooper cherry and taylor atkins later y'all
including the ultimate form of security, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.